How many times would you dare shoot your shot? For Beto Perez, the lucky number was four. Four times he came and went to American shores, returning to his home in Colombia in defeat. He traveled to the U.S. for the same reason as so many have over this nation's history, for a chance to better their lives. On the fourth chance, Perez made the usual rounds, hopping from one gym to another, selling his talents and ambition to whatever gym owner would listen, which is hard when you barely speak the language. Finally, the door cracked just a bit open, just enough to get a toe in, but enough to taste the possibility of a breakthrough. A waft of success tickles the nostrils. It was there in Miami, the son of a single mother, a young man who had to work three jobs to support his family after that mother was shot by a stray bullet. This person with an unrelenting dream, he began to dance. He would continue to teach class, and his students adored him. One such fan was so smitten, she told her own son, someone who had recently lost his high-tech job, that he should meet Beto. That person was Alberto Perlman, and the two would eventually meet and create what we now know as Zumba, those DVDs that sit so neatly next to millions of TV sets around the world, a million copies sold in just the first six months alone. Welcome to the Enfuego podcast. It's our socially distant solution to otherwise intimate sports stories. If you're wondering who I am, good. That means our audience extends further than just my parents. I'm Gabe Zaldivar, a writer who has contributed in the past to such publications as Bleacher Report, Forbes, The Huffington Post, and now Sports Illustrated as the editor of the multicultural vertical Enfuego. This episode, we talked to Santia Deck, a track star who found a knack for social media. And it's in that realm that she found one opportunity after another, going from rugby to flag football to becoming the first female to sign a multi-million dollar contract to play professional football and the first female athlete to own her own shoe company. But first, we chat with Jason Hayward. He and the Chicago Cubs are making the best of an absurd situation. They're in first place in their division, and Hayward, a 31-year-old outfielder, just became the first pro athlete investor at Turn 2 Equity Partners, a relationship that Hayward says will allow him to be not just an investor, but someone who drives content and molds the narrative. We kick off our conversation with that elephant in everyone's living room, how the Cubs are holding up playing in a COVID-shortened season. This is En Fuego. You guys are having a good season. Um, you guys are having a good start. I know it's, it's it's a weird time. You know, you guys are twelve and three. Um, you guys are keeping the levity going. I think. Um, how's it feel? How you how, how are you doing? I'm good, Gabe. I appreciate you having me, man. Um, you know, it's been a like you said, it's been a different year. A lot of tough times for a lot of people in in a lot of different ways. Um, but as a group, we've tried to stay together as a family. We knew that if we did get to play, you know, this this season, that we would have to rely on that a lot and a lot of us have been together through a lot of things over the past few years but it's all in all it's it's really nice to have an organization in the Cubs that have kind of met us more than halfway when it comes to the virus protocols making sure we're safe making sure our families are safe making sure we can do a lot of things that we need to do to focus on baseball um, and then also just when we first got together initially back in Chicago it was just make sure we address all the things going on in everyone's lives right now before we get back to baseball. So we can first focus on that, address it, talk about it, get on the same page, and then move forward as a group. And, you know, I definitely want to touch upon, you know, your life growing up. You know, you were remarkably young heading into professional baseball at 17. But here you are, you know, 31 years old. You know, you got a lot of baseball ahead of you. I know you have a lot cooking as far as entrepreneurship. 
Um, you know, can you explain to me a little bit about, you know, what you're doing with, with turn two, uh, but some of the other things that you do as far as, you know, and putting an emphasis on business outside of baseball, I guess. Yeah, man. I mean, I've always loved this game. Um, of course, played it since five years old. And like you said, I came into it young professionally. So starting off, it was just like, Hey, how do I become an adult, play this game, build a career and become established and, and you know, kind of just turn off all distractions on the outside make sure I get this taken care of first. But, but here I am 31 years old, uh, going on 11 seasons and you, know, you start to think about, you start to realize like, Hey, there are things that I want to use this platform for and take advantage of you know, a business aspect when I'm done playing. Cause you know, I hear from a lot of guys that are now going through that transition. Okay. So it's just, it's a different phase of life. You know, you've had this mindset where you're going to be, going to the field every day you're working that's that's your paycheck that's your income um that's your impact and that's your platform but you got to be ready for for what comes next and and with turn two that was for me my mindset on getting involved um investing in it and and also investing in something that's going to have something to do with my future and, and something that i can actively be a part of and get acclimated with in this transition phase when it does happen for me is that something that you kind of relay to the younger players is prepare for life after baseball? Um, Cause it seems like, you know, you've been pretty good at that, not just with turn two, but you know, mm-hmm. setting your goals for what happens after that and, and making sure maybe the younger players understand that too. Guys, careers are shorter. You know, you, you got to look ahead. I think it's definitely something that it's, it's going to be helpful. You know, I haven't, the guys on my team, I think they've done a pretty good job being in Chicago, being with this organization. They've kind of taken heed to that and seeing that, like you're saying, it's it's great to have something set up for off the field for life after baseball. I've opened up a facility in Atlanta um, called DSA Sports Facility, DSA Training. Um, have someone there who's running it and and taking care of business over there. It's just an opportunity to have a place to show up. And you can do everything, one-stop shop, training, baseball, football, basketball, track, field, you name it. There's cryotherapy. Um, the hot and cold tub, there's massage therapists there, things like that, that, you know, that I can immediately relate to that's going to be important in, in my life as an athlete, but you see um, the opportunity there for business. Um, you know, when it comes down to doing things in communities, it's just huge to reach out and, and use your platform in that way, um, you know, to do it now before, you know, if anything, you want to make sure you strike while the iron's hot. So you try to do it before you're out of baseball, out of the game and, you have to find another way to build you know, some popularity to build conversation. Talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about you know your parents, especially your father, getting you into baseball, um, that kind of mindset, um, and just you know playing ball early on. How, how was that? Um, my dad, you know, he actually played basketball in college. He went to Dartmouth. His uncle played for UCLA. Played for John Wooden, came in Washington, um, you know, back in the '60s. And when it came to baseball. So my dad, my parents were living in New York at the time they got married. I was born in Ridgewood, New Jersey. The 1986 Mets had Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry. Um, of course, that team won the World Series. But for him, he saw an opportunity. He was like, hey, like, you know, I want my son to be able to play baseball, to play a team sport where it's not just relying on him. Um, it's perfect for summertime, getting out of the house. And I just kind of fell into that. Um, you know, loving the game, growing up in Georgia, watching the Braves. Um, also having ties, family ties in New York, watching the Yankees. You know, so coming up in the 90s, it was just, you know, postseason baseball, winning baseball, that attitude and, and a great introduction. So my parents just always made sure 
um, as I began to grow and love the game more and more that I had every opportunity to get in front of the best coaching, the best training and, and the best competition. And I think that's a huge aspect as a young player as a kid, of course, in general, but as a young player in baseball, to have that support from family, to have opportunity to get to different showcases, to get into different competition, to have financial stability as well. It's a, it's a lot of support that goes into it. I think people don't realize. You started professional baseball at 17. You know, I just did a story, um, you know, Veritas Prep Academy. They're, they're a basketball uh, high school prep school that's bringing over Latin American players. Um, you know, they can't speak a lick of English. Um, but they're coming over and then they're going to division one schools. And for them, you know, they're leaving their family and it, it's, it's hard. Can you speak a little bit to just doing something like playing professional baseball, you know, heading out on the road at 17 years old? I can't even fathom that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, um, you know, something that always helped keep things in perspective for me when I saw Latin players, when I saw players come from other countries, you know, I left home for the first time, like you said, and, you know, 17 years old, 18 years old, driving down to Orlando, Florida to go play summer ball um, in the Gulf Coast League. That was emotional, you know, for the first time, stepping away from family, stepping, stepping away from friends at a young age. And once I got there, I was good. I was happy you know, to be playing baseball, but it was just new surroundings. Um, you know, a lot of new. It was beginning a professional career. And I can only imagine what it's like when you leave everything behind and you leave your country and you come over here. So it was just... It was eye-opening. Um, it was a little bit of a culture shock in the sense of, hey, man, like, no, you're out here now. I didn't go to college. That was, that was kind of my, you know, get, getting settled into the into the real world. So you know, much respect to anyone that does, you know, leave the country. But also, um, I think it's awesome to have colleges, universities, to have academies set up to bring people in and, and bring that diversity. And I guess, too, you know, you talk about college. You know, you I think you had, a, you know, a ride going to, to UCLA, at the mm-hmm. time, you know, like you said, your parents went to Dartmouth. Um, I mean, here you are, you know, world champion. You're on the Cubs. You guys are doing great. I, I think you're okay, Jason. But um, was there ever any pause? Like, what went into that as far as um, 17 being like, you know what? This is the path I'm taking. What went into that? Having the support of my parents to always push me to earn everything that I have and to, and to you know, set your goals as high as possible. Um, they wanted me to be able to make my own decisions for myself. They believed in that firmly, but they also believe in education, of course. And once I was able to get into a college and sign a letter of intent, they felt like, okay, well, he did this part. He did what we asked him to do. Now we want to hold up our end of the bargain and, you know, make sure that all this work and time he put in and sacrifice, sacrifice he made in school, that he's able to make a decision based on his goals. Um, you know, and for me, it was always go as high as possible in the draft. And, you know, first round is the first round. And I feel like it's, tougher to do it's tough to do better than first round um you know being 14th overall out of high school was huge the Atlanta Braves drafting me was huge like what I talked about you know just being an organization that is known for winning known for getting to the postseason and and watching them growing up um so for me it was okay UCLA great opportunity um great for education great for building characters you know Gaining new networking, all all those things that come with going to college, especially a university like that one. Um, it was awesome to have that, but it was also go play baseball. You know, go go out here, go after your dreams. Don't don't pause from that. Don't don't use this as a deterrent. This to me, it felt like it would have been, if anything, a distraction from all the time and work that I put in to go work out, to go go to showcases, play against the competition. 
you know, stay on the trouble, all those things that you had to do to become a first rounder at high school. And to me, it was a no brainer once it came down to first round Atlanta Braves play right there at home, the opportunity to do so. And like you said, I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, you know, and especially just looking at the success you've had in, in, in just a number of African-American players, um, you know, my next question is something that, you know, we perennially ask every single time is like, how do we get African-Americans more involved in the sport? Jason Hayward spoke to me on August 13th. On Wednesday, August 26th, American sports stopped once again. This time, it wasn't because of a global pandemic still very much raging across this nation. It was because another black man had his life altered at the hands of police officials. Our discussion obviously didn't include any mention of Jacob Blake, a black man from Kenosha, Wisconsin, who was left paralyzed after an officer-involved shooting. But it did touch a great deal on race. The subject, always just in the background of our national discourse, has now been thrust to the forefront standing unobstructed next to a COVID outbreak as things this country must consider on a daily basis. On Wednesday, Hayward joined NBA teams, WNBA teams, and fellow MLB players in preferring not to play their respective sport. City it out in protest, in anguish, in emotional exhaustion. Hayward's words hold that much more prescience and immediacy in light of recent events. All that after the break. My next question is something that, you know, we perennially ask every single time is like, how do we get African-Americans more involved in the sport? Well, there were 68 of us last year in 2019 um, total, like you said, out of 800 something. Um, I think it's a tough, tough, tough um, task to accomplish because of the communities. You You have inner cities, you have um things that are already set in place we've talked about a big topic of things here of late even as a as a team systemic racism you know to me you can call it that but whatever you want to call it there are no baseball fields in certain areas there are no sports facilities there are no basketball courts or anything in certain areas so you know when you have that situation growing up and i've seen it on the west side of chicago and the south side of chicago here in, in, in the past few months or what options do you have other than the biggest influences? And in, in a black community, you know, the biggest influence is going to be NFL. It's going to be NBA. You know, with the NFL, there are a lot of scholarships. There are a lot of opportunities to get into college because there are a lot of numbers. Um, you know, when it comes to baseball, I think it's like 11 and a half or maybe 11.3 scholarships, however that works, you know, per team. So, you know, a baseball roster is at least 25, 26 guys. But that's leaving a lot of money that has to be spent by a family to send a kid to college to give them an opportunity to go, you know, to go further in the game. So I feel like there's just not a lot of opportunity as other sports. So NFL, you come right out of college, you're immediately making some kind of money. Where in, in baseball, even if you go out of high school, you still have to go to the minor leagues. I went through six levels from being drafted in the first round to going all six levels and then making it to the major leagues. So it's just a different different path. And I think that initially will send someone off, right? That's going to send people off and say, well, why don't I just go to the NBA? Why don't I just go to college, play basketball for a year, and then I'm in the league making money? Um, so I think maybe that 
we have to find a way to to get that to change, um, to get it more accessible in college. Because if you can see, hey, there's a there's actually an avenue I can take going the educational way, which is what we're all preached. You know, regardless of your your home situation, we're all taught, hey, go to school, get good grades, and a lot of things will happen for you. Well, that's not necessarily the case when it comes to baseball route. Um, so then African Americans not having that opportunity um, and in more situations than not, um, you know, I just think it's there's a lot of dead ends in it. So my parents, I was, you know, very fortunate to have both of them growing up, very fortunate to have them, both of them. They met at Dartmouth and Ivy League school. So just different experiences, um, different, different opportunities available there, which everyone doesn't have. And, you know, we've been fortunate here in Fuego to, to cover some really interesting stories. You know, Jessamine Stanley, who's a black yoga instructor, she's killing it on, you know, on Instagram. And um, Michaela Prince and Calvin Royal are two black uh, ballet dancers, and we covered their story. And, you know, time and again, you know, they tell me it's exposure, you know, for, you know, showing, you know, that kid in the audience, that kid in the stands that, oh, you know, damn, I could do that. You know, that's that's an avenue for me, which brings me to, I guess, the topic of the last few days has been marketing in baseball. You know, you got Fernando Tatis, you got Juan Soto, you know, mm-hmm. you got yourself, you know, but I think marketing falls a lot on the actual individual baseball players a lot. I, I might be mistaken, but it seems like baseball could do a better job of kind of highlighting some stories. It's the player is the big part of things and then the team right. Um, right. from a marketing standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything to that that you think as far as kind of highlighting some of these stories? I think that's very fair as well. You know, baseball, it's to me, it's kind of the golf of team sports in the sense of there's a certain etiquette that's, you know, not spoken on. It's just understood that, you, know, you put the team first. Like, yes, we had this great player here, but we put the team first. You know, you, you do everything for the team, wins and losses. Um, you look at, you know, Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr., two guys that had, you know, amazing careers and, and brought a lot of attention to the game of baseball, but neither one of them, I don't believe, have a World Series ring. You know, so it's 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 a tough balance. It's a, you know, you look at today, we talk about Tatis Jr., um, this newer wave of players, pimping home runs or showing flair, showing excitement is, is more accepted now, which I'm honestly a fan of because it's, it's the different area. It's, you know, kids coming up and bringing excitement. When I came into the game in 2010, if you pimp a home run, you know, you're going to have a problem. And that's just 2010, you know, before I got here, it was even, it was that much worse. So I just think the game is slowly changing. And like you're talking about the exposure, it wasn't the norm. Um, Now it's becoming more of that. And I think it's, no, there's a there's a good way to balance it, and and hopefully we continue to find that with baseball. So, so are you advocating bat flips here, Jason? Is that- <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm advocating, and and I'll tell anyone like for one, if if you're not on my team, then no, you're not on my team. That's that's for your team to handle. But just be ready to handle whatever comes with your actions on the field. You know, you can do whatever you want to do out there. Just be ready for whatever comes with. And I think yeah, just you know. Every all of us, you know, being thrust into this world of COVID, you know, every every aspect of life has been kind of changed. And I think right. baseball, a you know, little bit at a time, you know, with the different rules, but just seeing the gameplay has been, you know, it's just been different this this season. You know, yeah. it's a little bit more, um, I don't know, vivacious or something. Um, I think you know, guys are you know, you don't you guys don't have people people, people in the stands, right. so it's a yeah. little bit more. I don't know what's it like out there. You know, you guys don't have people in the stands. Is it like what, what's what, explain to me how's what's it like? 
I think for our, I can only, I guess, speak to the group that I'm, I'm with, you know, the guys I'm showing up with every day is, you know, this is kind of taking it a step back for all of us in a sense of high school, you know, some guys that went to college, minor leagues where, like you said, no fans, not many fans, not many people around. This is obviously completely different because there's, at, at all these seats in the stadium, there's probably maybe 30 people we see out here that are showing up every day with us and, and work in the field and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just one of those vibes where you, you really got to make the most of this and remember why you started playing this game because you love it, because, you know, you have fun with the camaraderie. And I think that's what we've been doing, just having fun, competing. You know, we, we have to show up every day. Yes, it's our job, but, but we want to have fun doing this because there are worse places to be. There are people that are in, in worse off you know, positions than we are right now, struggling in so many ways. So we know we're bringing something to them to watch on TV, but we're also going out here because we love the game of baseball. You know, you know, Jason, I know you got a game to go to, but um, I, I really did want to delve into, you know, kind of the racial issues. I mean, this is a special year where mm-hmm. we've got, you know, a pandemic, but we've got, you know, issues that have been boiling over for, for centuries. Um, and it's finally coming to a place where it seems like there's going to be some meaningful change. Can you speak a little bit to that? I know, I know you've spoken a little bit before about, you know, kind of the things that you had to deal with in the minors that kind of took some of your teammates aback. They were like, whoa, you know, mm-hmm. um, can you just speak to your experience, I guess, with that? Um, yeah, I, you know, so before opening day, you know, we all had a conversation. I think every every clubhouse had a conversation on, hey, guys wearing Black Lives Matter shirts, um, you know, the logo on the baseballs, the bases having things, um, the, the video on the scoreboard, just all the things that we're accustomed to on an opening day, but then there being a new form of paying homage to a, a different struggle that's been going on in our country. Um, that's kind of how I try to explain it to my teammates and, and the experiences I share with them. Yes, some were in the minor leagues, but I also shared that some have happened in the major leagues. Like, that's just a part of life. It's our everyday ground it's a part of our struggle and you know i just try to let you know teammates know and everyone know that we're not saying we're the only ones as black people that struggle that go through things we're not saying everyone's perfect but in a work environment in the sport of baseball you know you don't see a lot of us around and with that there are a lot of you know organizations there are a lot of fan bases there are a lot of just in general the vibe when you come to certain fields is you know it kind of brings that along with it because it's just not based around us. Um, and, you know, from, I've had you know, fans say a number of things. I've been at my home home field in, in Atlanta, I've been called boy, you know, by, by somebody um, because they wanted me to come over there and sign something for their kid because said it was his birthday. So he, he told me to go over there and sign it. Um, you know, those, there's just a few, you know, to, to talk about right there, but just as a whole, you know, having um, Theo Epstein reach out to me before we all got together as a team, um, you know, wanting to address these issues, wanting to, you know, take full responsibility and ownership and saying himself, like, hey, like, there are ways that I can do a better job in making everyone feel included on top of making Black people feel included in the game of baseball because, you know, you just look around and, and the norm, you know, the status quo is, hey, you know, everyone's comfortable with hiring someone that looks like them or everyone's comfortable working with someone that looks like them, the music, all, all these things are different. Um, so I think that's why you see 
you know, a lot of black players and, and Latin American players, you know, kind of have something to relate with is because we're all looked at as something different because we're, for one, you know, they're not from this country, but black players were from this country, but, you know, we just looked at it as different because there's not as many of us around. So um, on my end, again, you know, I've just tried to continue to push the message of, you know, we just would like to have equality, but also um, a group of players, group of black players with the Players Alliance um, got together at the start of the season, right before the season, and, and put a video together, just speaking on some of the causes that are going on, some of the struggles that are going on in the black community. And, and for us, it was a big step because in the game of baseball, it's always been, you know, you're afraid to speak out on things like that. You're, you're afraid to speak out on anything but baseball, um, especially as an African-American. I mean, you even see LeBron James and other, other guys in the NBA be told to shut up and dribble or just focus on sports. You know, that's those guys. And like you talk about, those are people with a lot of exposure, a lot of fans, a lot of following, um, you know, a lot of popularity. Well, baseball being the team sport that it is, you know, fans even more so. And even some organizations at times are, you know, kind of heavy on not making it okay to speak out. Um, it has to be done the right way, in my mind. So that's that's what I've been trying to bring is just, hey, like I'm speaking out on these things in the right way. And when someone asks me, well, what do I think about the stick to sports thing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm always going to say, well, I wish that was the case. I wish I could do that. No, I can't just continue to turn the shoulder, turn the you no, know, turn my other cheek and look away from it anymore because I have family, you know, one day I, I hope to have kids. I have a brother, I have mom, dad, all these things. You no, know, people in, in our community that do go through these struggles and we gotta speak up for them. And I guess, you know, baseball being that microcosm, I know, and I don't want to name names, but there's been players that are outspoken kind of in the other direction. How has your specific team been, you know, just in this kind of remarkable year? Has there been a little bit more momentum or a shift in kind of understanding or has it always been that way? You know, what's kind of the camaraderie there? Um, no, so I, I let everyone know, you know, Theo asked me to speak, uh, David Ross, our manager asked me to speak to the group when we first got together. And I, I let everyone know that, uh, hey, I've never felt any bit of racism or anything like that in this organization, Chicago Cubs, not, not from any of my teammates. Um, but I let them know at the same time that if you guys have any questions, like, feel free to ask. So Theo following that up, you know, he asked me if it was okay. Could we have a dialogue? Could we bring someone in? And, and they brought in um, Ray McLemore, who's from Chicago, played in the NFL, he's been a chaplain. He's, he's done a lot of things. And he's had a lot of conversations with groups and teams on this topic of you know, how do we get the dialogue going so we can, as a group, ask questions, talk with each other, share you know, insights, share stories. And that's what we did um, as the Chicago Cubs, as, as a team, as coaching staff. And I think it was great because we already had understanding, but then it allowed guys to ask more questions for themselves, for for me to be able to share some things, for you know, all of us to be able to ask, you know, how do we support this the right way, you know, moving forward and not be looked at as someone who's just doing it for political reasons only. Um, so, so that's what we did as a group. And I think it was great. Um, we finished up those couple of conversations, you know, putting it all out there, I would say. And at the end of the day, everyone came back to the conclusion of, you know, we're a family, we're together. And if someone's going through a struggle, whether it's, you know, myself being a black player, whether it's 
Wilson Contreras having struggles, you know, back home in Venezuela with the things that are going on with their government. You see, you know, Puerto Rico when they had the hurricanes, you know, their government was kind of sketchy with it. Um, you know, talking to Javi, just everyone being able to relate to, hey, someone's going through something right now. This is their cause. This is their issue. We don't want to leave them behind and we want to support them the best way we can. You know, it, it seems like that was a good good call by Theo to largely keep you guys together. You know, you guys are killing it right now. And it seems like, mm-hmm. especially this year, you got to rely on, you know, family. You got to rely on your brotherhood. And you guys have been together, like you said, so long. Mm-hmm. That, that seems like the right choice for something like this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, um, you know, during the layoff, downtime, whatever it was, while we were all waiting to see if we're going to have a season, you know, Anthony Rizzo was a big advocate in making sure we all did Zoom calls, you know, trying to do it like once a week, you know, just check in with each other, you know. And and when we did, it was like, hey, you no, know, we, we miss each other. It wasn't like a, you know, eyewash cliche thing. It was, oh, well, let's let's say what's up to the to the boys and, and see how everybody's doing, check in, make sure their families are cool, and just hang out for like 30 minutes, an hour. Um, you know, talk shop, you know, things that we all know we enjoy on a daily basis when we show up for work every day. To get out on a light note, um, what, where, where do you find the laughs, you know, during this year? You know, it's been a stressful year for everybody. You know, for the wife and I, it's it's wine and puzzles or wine and binge watching something. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, are you, mm-hmm. what are you doing to kind of to get the laughs out, man? Well, away from the field, my fiance and I, we got two puppies. Um, I want, when do we get them? In March, like end, end of February, March. And so, I mean, you know, it's funny because when we're walking around and, and walking on people are like, oh, how old are they? We're like six months, seven months. They're like, oh, you guys got COVID puppies. You know, like, yeah, we, we got them during COVID because we, we needed something to keep the mood light and, and, and keep us in a routine. Right. Um, so that was a big part of that. You know, watching Impractical Jokers, watching movies, watching Netflix shows and, and enjoying quality time at home has been great for her and I. Um, but at the field, I mean, we can all relate. You know, no one can relate to this better than than all of us. So uh, this group has been fortunately fortunate enough to be together for the past five, six years. So we we keep each other on our toes. Like we we've always showed up and and brought it in as family. We we get on each other. We have fun. We compete. Um, but I just think all of us play a different role in, in how we stay stay light and, and keep things lighthearted on a daily basis because we have to. At 28 years old, many of us were still trying to figure things out. Santia Deck isn't dissimilar. It's just that she's figuring out her future while absolutely dominating her present. She has over 600,000 followers on Instagram, is the first female athlete to own her own shoe company, uh, the first line of Tronus shoes launched this summer, and next year she'll suit up for the Upstart Women's Football League Association as the face of that league. I recently met up with her over Zoom to talk about a great many things and try to figure out how someone can accomplish a lifetime of success before the age of 30. The secret, as I discovered, is there is no secret. It's all hustle and hard work. All that after the break. Going into 2019, Santia Deck had her hopes set on competing in what would have been the 2020 Summer Olympics. A global pandemic moved the Games to 2021, but before COVID took over the world, an injury robbed Deck of making any rugby Olympic squad. She sank into a depression. I asked her how she managed to wriggle her way free from that weight and how she's faring during a year that is filled with so much turmoil. And as if the birds chirping in the background at her home seemed to be saying in this segment, 
better days are most certainly ahead. First off, do you have any questions or anything? Or, or? No, um, it seems kind of right to the point. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm good for now anyway. Um, I guess first, because I definitely want to go into your background and everything, but I guess first, how is it um, being the face of a league? Um, and it's starting in 2021, so hopefully hopefully you guys are, are skipping this, you know, pandemic thing. Hopefully, you know, things are back to normal then, so I, I think it's the timing's good in that regard. Yeah. Um, but I guess, how is it, you know, are you excited? Are you, you know, chomping at the bit to get out there? I mean, what's it like being the face of a new league? Um, I mean, it's it's definitely been um, life-changing, to say the least. It's been a very overwhelming, you know, since I signed in December. So my life has been definitely at 360. Um, but I'm definitely excited. Um, you know, I love the sport of football. I, I've been playing for about five years now. Um, you know, my story is, is pretty unique in how I got to the point that, you know, I, you know where I'm at now. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely excited. It is a lot of pressure. You know, of course, everybody – is expecting me to do, um, you know, amazing things, which I, I definitely expect myself to do amazing things. But there definitely is a lot of eyes on me. Um, you know, I've been super busy since December. Even through this pandemic, I've had a ton of interviews, a ton of opportunities. So it's just been crazy, to say the least. But I'm excited. So I guess I guess going into it, where did um, your love for fitness start? Where did your love for football start, um, you know, uh yeah where, where did it all begin so um like i said i didn't start playing football till um i guess like 2015 oh wow i'm sorry this is like a humongous me okay <laughs> um i didn't start playing till like 2015 and that i started with flag football so flag football um kind of it filled the void of me no longer running track because i ran tracks from six years old to 24 and i'm 28 so that was like my life so um, when I was done with track after college, um, I was like, man, I, I want to find something to kind of like fill that void of not being an athlete anymore. And I found this little league, um, went to one practice and like the rest was history. Like I played for about five years, uh, made the international team, the USA team. Um, and that's actually how my like career kind of took off because I went viral. Like Julio Jones shouted me out, Marlon Wins, like all these humongous celebrities like started, you know, reposting my videos. Then, uh, you know, I played, I got actually recruited by, you know, from, to play rugby, which I was on a whole Olympic journey all 2019. And unfortunately, um, I got injured. So that kind of ended my, my 2019 Olympic hopeful career. Um, and I was just kind of like in a little depression, you know, to be honest, I was in a, a pretty bad depression. I wasn't eating, I was barely sleeping. And I don't think people understand how traumatizing that is for an athlete when you get injured. Definitely, if you're training for one thing. So it took me a while to get out of it, but I just remember I'm very spiritual. So I, I remember getting on my knees one night and just, you know, giving it all to God. And, um, you know, a month later, I, I got this offer to play, you know, tackle football. And uh, I actually played LFL for like, I guess, half the season. I ended up just not liking it. It was just, I don't want to talk about the LFL league, but it's, it's not very empowering for women, to say the least. And so I, it just wasn't a fit for who I was. Um, so, you know, a combination of that and rugby and flag football just prepared me to just do what I'm about to do in this, you know, this new league. So, yeah. And talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think, um, you know, fans and people from home, we're all dealing with, you know, anxiety, stress, depression. What was it, what, what kind of, what was an outlet for you that allowed you to kind of get through this, this dark time where you just didn't have that outlet, you were injured? 
Yeah. So, I mean, luckily, like, I, I have a very strong support system. Like, you know, my, my mom is like my best friend. She's also my therapist. <laughs> so, like, you know, talking to her and, and having her pray over me and, and my family and, and friends, that was honestly the way that I got over it and just praying, you know, my spiritual background is definitely really what got me out of it. Looking at things more in a positive light. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, the importance of having a league, um, uh, this new league, um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, the WFLA, which is the Women's Football League Association, um, this is obviously a super new league, first of its kind, because we're actually getting paid millions, you know, like the men. Um, I, you know, I made history by becoming the highest paid. Um, but I think coming from all these different sports, you know, where we literally have never been paid what we deserve, it's empowering because it's like we finally have the opportunity to be able to become the full, you know, the, the, the best that we can we can be because we have time now. We can actually, you know, afford to, like, you know, do this full time, which a lot of women don't. Even playing, you know, WNBA or playing, you know, being track and field runners, when they're done with their seasons, they some of them go and have jobs. So it's like, you know, it's, it's amazing to finally have the opportunity to be able to train, you know, to our full, you know, our full capacity, be able to, you know, eat what we need to eat, travel, whatever we need to do so that we can be the best that we can be like the men. I think it's just empowering and also having insurance for once. You know, I mean, I just remember being in a sport where if you got injured, you got you have to pay for your own bill, mm -hmm. which is like unheard of, or you have to pay to play, you know. And I'm just happy that all these little girls that are like in my DMs or that I see in the streets are like, man, I want to I want to be like you. I want to be able to play football. I'm like, you can. There's like pretty much the women's NFL now. That's, I just call it that, but it's, it's not supported by the NFL. Just right, you know. right, yeah. But, um, you know, that's it's kind of like our NFL. So it's like they have a home. So now when they're like five and six, they can go and train like their brothers to take care of their families one day, you know, and have generational wealth like the men. So I'm just happy that we have the opportunity to do what they're doing on their level, but not have to play with them. <laughs> and I know uh, you, you were teasing something on Instagram earlier. Can you speak a little bit to any kind of shoe deal you might have coming out? Well, um, so the shoe, well, it's actually my shoe company. So my shoe company Kind of like how there's a Nike Adidas, mine is called Shranos. So I own the entire shoe company. I'm the, I'm actually about to make history a second time because I'm the first female athlete ever to have her own shoe line. So this is going to be pretty big as well. Um, but yeah, like this opportunity can, this has actually been a two-year process. Like nobody knows how long it has taken to even just launch the first shoe. So we're actually launching my first edition, which is the 2020 which was unfortunately going to be the Olympic shoe, but we all know the Olympics is canceled. But we're still going to release it July 19th. So, um, I mean, it's just been – the response have, has been just, like, insane. Like, I did not expect this many people to want the shoe. So, like, we're just overwhelmed with, like, inquiries and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's my shoe. It's called Toronto's. Um, You know, I, I decided to make my own shoe because, first of all, I love fashion. Mm -hmm. But I've always been the type of person where I believe in ownership. I want my own, you know, I want to be able to pass stuff down to my future children and things like that. So um, when I was, you know, introduced with this opportunity, I just jumped on it. I mean, I can't even explain. We're just so excited. So You said it's a two-year process. What's that like um, to, to just like one day be like, all right, I'll, I'll just do it myself. It had to be arduous. Yeah. So it, it's actually funny because people don't really, to this day, understand the power of social media. Because I was actually approached to promote a shoot. And I, I promoted a shoe for a little bit. And um, I mean, I, I helped them sell a lot of shoes. But um, the guy was like, why don't we just create your own shoe? 
And I was like, whatever. He was like, no, like, seriously, like, I design all these shoes. I'll do one for you. And so um, I was like, okay. So we started with a, you know, I told him what I wanted. And he literally got it the first time. Like, he may have had to change a little bit of things, but he got the whole design of the shoe and, and like, like what was in my head down pat. And so, um, you know, we started the whole process of him creating the shoe. Um, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but pretty much, you know, there was there was ups and downs with that because uh, I don't even know what I can and can't say. So I'll just say sure. there was ups and downs with the process. And um, because of that, we actually decided to kind of stop. But then, you know, uh, we all kind of had a little group meeting one day and just said, look, this could be big. Um, there isn't anybody out here doing something like this. Definitely athletes because they're too focused on what they're doing as athletes or they just don't think about it. Um, because like you said, they're sponsored by other companies. And so we all, you know, decided to come together. Um, there was more ups and downs, but um, pretty much long story short, we got to where we are now. Um, and it's just been, it's been crazy. And I don't think people understand, like, you can attract so much if you know what you're doing on social media. If you have a clean brain, if you're, you know, doing something positive and putting positive energy out and, you know, just taking care of yourself and your brand, there's the opportunities are endless. I tell everybody, every single dime I make is from social media besides this contract, <laughs> uh, which even that came from social media because the owner saw me on social media. So that's how, you know, all that happened. Um, and rugby, you know, the Olympic journey and going to the combine and going to the Super Bowl, like all these things that I've gotten have come from social media. So I tell athletes, just people in general, if you want to be an influencer, it's a job and it's this is like your baby it's almost like your own company you know you have to you have to protect it so that's how it came was literally from social media somebody saw me believed in me and now we're here and and you just strike me as i mean it's it's amazing you know you're you're going from one sport to the next you know track and field and then you're like all right let's do rugby let's do football and, and you're starting you know you're an influencer and all this other stuff um how when did you have an aha moment when you were like, you know what, I can be a social media influencer. This is, it's kind of, this could be a thing for me. Like when was the moment we were like, okay, this is working out. Okay. So like my story with how I actually started on social media is like kind of funny because I was on Facebook. I was like a Facebook junkie. Of course, like everybody was. And um, that's when I guess like a few years after I graduated from high school, Instagram came out. And so like, I actually got on Instagram like two years late okay. because all my friends were on there. They're like, Oh, like, and I'm just like, all you can do is post pictures. Like, who cares? And my frients are like, oh, well, I bet I can, I can get more followers than you. And I'm competitive. So, like, I was like, oh, no, you can't. So I actually made a profile. And all I was doing was, like, posting the duck lips and the selfies. And then eventually I started posting, like, my track and field college workouts. And people started to, like, share them. And they were like, oh, like, your abs are so defined for a girl, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, you know, I just was posting all these, like, super sane, you know, type workouts that, like, normal people couldn't do. And that's kind of how I started getting, like, traction because bigger pages started sharing me, sharing my posts and things like that. And uh, I think at, like, one point I had maybe, like, five, 5,000 followers or something like that. And I remember there was this one girl in particular, and I thank her. I can't remember her Instagram anymore. It's, like, something via. And I remember, like, she would always post, like, shirts and, like, belts and, like, all these things. And I was like, hey, like, I just in here and I was like, hey are you going to pay for this? And she was like, yeah, like I get paid like a hundred dollars. She had like 10 K or something like that. And I was like, Oh my gosh, really? And so she was like, yeah, just like DM them and just tell them like that she want to promote it and blah, blah, blah. And so it was this Hawaiian company. Right. And I was just like, Hey, I want to promote your shirt. And they were like, sure. We'll send it to you for free. Just post it. And at that moment, being a college student, like a broke college student, 
who wants clothes and wants free stuff, I was like, wait, this could be something. So like, I started doing shout out for shout out with like all these different influencers and my, my like, inf- my freaking page just started to grow massively. And then like one day my mom, who's also my manager, she like was like, hey, like I noticed that your social media numbers are like growing pretty quickly. We should make this into a business. And I was like, okay. She was like, well, what, should, what do you want to be called? I was like, I don't know, maybe like Princess of Abs. And she was like, why be a princess when you can be a queen? And my, my uh, LLC is Queen of Abs Fitness. So that's kind of how it started. And then from there, like I started being able to promote free stuff. I got like anything I wanted, I, got, I was getting for free. And then I started getting paid to do stuff. And then I became like a trainer. And that's kind of like how, you know, everything started, you know. But yeah, it was literally because my friend said, I bet I can get more followers than you. That's how it started. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, and how was how was growing up? Um, you know, you mentioned that um, you started track and field when you were six. Um, was that like the sport when you were growing up? Like that's, is, was that you just poured your life in that? Yeah. So um, I actually grew up, well, I, was, I was born in Greenville, South Carolina. I moved to Houston, Texas when I was two. And that's where I was raised. Um, but pretty much like I, I have three brothers. One is my twin and then I have a sister, older sister. And so, but she was like, she's a lot older than us. So like she wasn't really in the house as much. So I was really like, with grow with my brothers so i was an extreme tomboy i did literally every single thing they could do i thought i could do better like i used to try to go to pb football practice until i got hit my mom was like oh nope not my daughter so i couldn't do that anymore <laughs> but i was actually the coach was like yo she's better than half these boys but my mom was like okay but she's still not gonna play so that ended my football tackle football journey as a, as a young girl but um i still was out there playing like street football street basketball hopping fences. So like I grew up with boys. So I was like always, you know, out playing in dirt, you know, whatever they were doing. Um, and like football was like, of course, coming from Texas, being in Texas, that's like our like, so all my brothers played football. They all were running backs. They all were really, really good. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. I just was like, this is just part of being a, a Texan. Like, you know, your, your life is football. You know, every Sunday, you know, you're going to be in front of the TV. But um, my first sport actually was was tennis at four years old and the thing with tennis was uh we used to go to practice but me and my twin brother like we used to hit the ball over the fence like so my my our teacher was our coach was like hey hey i don't think they're i think they're too strong for this sport like i think they should do something else and so like we played for like a year and then my mom was like okay let's put them in track and so yeah track ended up being my life i tried to play basketball wasn't very coordinated couldn't really dribble the ball or anything (laughs) um tried to play soccer but soccer was at the same time as track so that was like impossible um but yeah like that was those are my sports but track just stuck and like I was like obsessed with track so that's kind of like I owe track you know I owe that so much because that's why I'm, I've been able to play all these other sports to be pretty good at it so and, it's, and uh, I guess what would you tell you know young girls I mean that want to get into football or they're playing, you know, little league baseball or you know I mean because it seems like you're the type of person's like yeah no I'm just gonna go do that I mean, honestly, like, I live my life with no regrets. Like, I believe in trying whatever you want to try while you can, you know, even if you if you do have kids or you have a husband, like, I still believe in doing whatever you want to do in this lifetime so that you don't have any regrets when you're, like, 80 years old, sitting on your rocking chair, looking out into, like, an open field, you know, reminiscing on your life. Like, I want to be able, be able to tell my kids and grandkids, like, yeah, I did everything. Like, I don't literally have anything that I didn't do that I wanted to do. 
So um, that's kind of how I live my life. And, you know, I'm only, I'm 28 years old. And like, I always told myself, I wanted to be retired by 30. I know that's like, a, that's a lot. <laughs> that's pushing it. But like, I, I feel like you're supposed to work as hard as you can in your 20s so that you can just chill like the rest of your life and just live life. Are you really going to retire at 30? Uh, it seems like you're just <laughs> you're so busy and you're the type of person that's like, we'll find the next thing. So I guess in two years or five years, do, do you see yourself uh, retired to kind of just, like you said, just chilling? Or is there a next next step? Do you see more things that you're kind of like, kind of want to accomplish that too? Is there anything out there that you're like after, or is it just you're going to be doing football and fashion and, and you know what's next? Honestly, like, I think I'll be okay. But I think just knowing me, like, I can't sit still. And I want to, like, have so many different, you know, opportunities to do whatever. I think I'll still be doing stuff. But I, I have told myself, like, I feel like at some point you are going to have to be like, okay, do you want to, do you want a husband? Do you want kids? Like you have to like make time somewhere in your life. So I don't think I'm ever going to stop to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm Gabe Zaldivar. The Enfuego podcast is edited by Dylan Wren. If you like great stories from underserved communities, help us out. Like, follow, subscribe, leave a comment, or if you're pressed for time, give us a five-star review. Not only will I be your friend for life, this will go a long way to keeping the show moving forward, continuing to give a little bit more of the spotlight to emerging communities throughout the sports world. Join us next episode when our guest is none other than Hall of Famer, Lakers legend, and current basketball analyst, James Worthy. We chat about the current state of unrest, old school basketball, and sneakers that would make your feet bleed. See you next week for an all new episode of En Fuego. En Fuego.